The Supreme Court agrees to hear the case surrounding Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban, which bans abortion before the court's subjective standard of viability. This is a pro-life test for Trump's Supreme Court placements. This is the most important abortion-related case since Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992. We will examine the possible outcomes and expose the abortion industry's greatest myth, viability. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for tuning into the show today. Um, I'm on the road right now, so you'll see a different set uh, and setup today for what we need to dive into today, because as you may have heard, the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this case out of Mississippi regarding whether they can ban abortion at 15 weeks. Now, the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade, Doe v. Bolton, and Planned Parenthood v. Casey made it very clear that states were not allowed to ban abortion in the first trimester. And while they could regulate abortion in the second trimester, which would be within that 15 weeks, they couldn't ban abortion in the second trimester. Well, this is exactly what this Mississippi bill aims to do. And this is the first major test for President Trump's pro-life, allegedly, hopefully, appointments to the highest court in the land. But before we dive into that, if you guys enjoy this show, if you've been watching for a little bit or listening, uh, would you give us a rating and review? It really helps us reach more people, especially during a political administration that is more hostile to life than ever before. We need voices uh, like mine and many others who are bringing clarity to these issues and equipping normal common Americans with a semi-functioning prefrontal cortex that don't want abortion through point of birth on how to defend life and specifically equipping the church and the body of Christ to stand in the gap on behalf of all preborn neighbors from the moment of conception. So leave us a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. We really appreciate it. So this Supreme Court case is called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. That's the name of the abortion killing center that filed the lawsuit. So the Supreme Court has agreed to hear this case surrounding Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban known as the Gestational Age Act, or HB 1510. The case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, gives the Supreme Court of the United States the opportunity to reconsider Roe versus Wade, as well as Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which was the 1992 Supreme Court case that essentially affirmed the ruling in Roe and set what came to be known as viability as the standard for when abortion can and cannot be restricted. Now, you're probably familiar with this term. If you're not, let me sort of just refresh you and give you a definition for this. Viability is this very subjective standard that has to do with when the child in the womb can survive outside the womb, with assistance, of course. Any infant that you leave on the table is going to die. The, the, the developmental stage or gestational age at which the child can survive outside the womb and no longer requires presiding in their mother's uterus in order to continue to live. So arguments will likely be heard this fall of 2021, and a decision on the case is expected by the summer of 2022. So this would be the first case focused on abortion limits since the appointments of three conservative-leaning judges to the court, Amy Coney Barrett, Neil Gorsuch, and Brett Kavanaugh. And this case will determine whether pre-viability restrictions on abortion are constitutional, because 
never has the Supreme Court allowed individual states to ban abortion before this subjective definition of viability, because viability continues to change given medical advancements that enable the child to survive outside the womb and not require their mother's uterus to continue living. So the Jackson Women's Health Organization in Mississippi, of course, the only abortion business in the state, by the way, immediately filed suit against the state and the federal district court struck down the law. Okay, but after an appeal, the fifth U.S. U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals agreed with the district court that the law was unconstitutional because it restricted abortion prior to viability. But then Mississippi Attorney General Lynn Fitch asked the, U- the Supreme Court in June 2020 to take up the 15-week abortion ban appeal. So this has been going on for a while. In October 2020, the court said it would consider hearing the case. So this is taking quite some time, and you'll, if you follow pro-life news sources, you'll notice that every month or so, there's an article about what happened to the, Supreme, the Mississippi Supreme Court case on pre-viability abortions. And so this is very significant because it shifts the debate away from the commonly held debate of viability and towards the pure life of the child. Because a lot of Americans, for whatever reason, tend to reject abortion once the child can survive outside the womb. Now, it makes no sense why they pick that um, that developmental stage, but it's very common. And so this shifts the debate purely towards the right to life of the child um, in order to get that type of incremental legislation wins to eventually overturn abortion. And just to give you a window into the womb at 15 weeks when a, this bill would ban abortions in Mississippi— At 15 weeks, the baby has fingers, toes, eyelids, eyebrows, eyelashes, fingernails, hair, teeth, bones, a functioning nervous system, and fully developed genitals. Her heart is pumping roughly 25 quarts of blood every day. At this stage of development, she can make complex expressions, respond to touch, suck her thumb, and yawn. And in every state in America today, you can kill her. By 15 weeks old, however, the baby is too large to fit inside a suction catheter tube. So they must be killed through a DNE abortion, a dilation and evacuation, which involves tearing a baby's arms and legs from her torso before crushing her skull. So a very violent procedure, and it should be a type of abortion that most Americans can unite against because most Americans don't understand how an abortion is performed at this stage of development. They might be more comfortable with an abortion pill that kills a very tiny human being that they can justify killing in their minds. But once the child is fully able to feel the pain of dismemberment and has to have their limbs torn away from their torso, more Americans become more and more uncomfortable with that. And so this Supreme Court case shifts the debate to viability. So what is viability? Well, viability, as defined by um, Wikipedia, to give you a a sort of a a common left-wing source, has been used in the United States constitutional law since Roe v. Wade. Viability is the potential of the fetus to survive outside the uterus after birth. And it goes on to say that the viability specifically has to do with when the child can survive as supported by up-to-date medicine. So in other words, we understand that no no newborn baby can survive outside the womb if you just leave them there. Like any infant, they require support. And so viability has constantly shifted and changed based off of the most current up-to-date medicine that enables you to care for the life of that child. But in allowing states to ban abortion after viability, the courts have admitted 
that they believe there is something significant in the concept of viability, right? Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't allow states to ban abortion after viability. They're acknowledging that viability is somehow decisive. If there was nothing significant about viability, they wouldn't allow states to ban abortion after that point, for they would recognize no change in the fetus that would make it reasonable for states to protect him or her. So by allowing states to ban abortion after viability, which the Supreme Court has for decades, but not before viability, the courts have granted the premise that human life is only valuable and worthy of protection when a human being no longer requires their mother's body to live. That's what viability means. The child can survive outside of their mother's uterus and does not require a connection and uh, dwelling inside their mother's body to continue living. So the courts are somehow granting this premise that it's reasonable to protect the child. Somehow they have value or rights that are deserving of protection such that will allow states to ban abortions after viability, but not before. Okay, so the viability debate has really been the center of the abortion debate in America for a long time because so many Americans have also granted this premise. For whatever reason, they don't like the idea of killing babies through abortion if the child could survive outside the womb anyways and just be delivered and given up for adoption. So they've somehow connected one's ability to survive on one's own, or at least apart from their mother's uterus, with rights. But what are the problems with this? I think this is what we need to point out and what you need to be aware of because these are the sort of unspoken assumptions that are at work in the Supreme Court case that is trying to challenge the courts to allow states to ban abortion pre-viability before we have the medical technology to save children if they were born naturally. So what are the problems with this, with granting this premise that somehow the right to life of the child or their human value is dependent on whether they can survive outside the womb on their own or not. Well, a baby requires their mother's body to live even after birth, right? It's not as if the child is completely independent. They're still dependent on their mother's breast milk. They're still dependent on their mother's body even after birth. So should we legalize killing babies up until the point that they no longer require breast milk? Because as long as they require breast milk, they would be dependent on their mother's body. They wouldn't be fully viable. And so therefore they wouldn't be a person, right? Well, the objection from pro-choicers would be something like this. Well, they'll say, but Seth, we have baby, we have baby formula, right? So the child doesn't require the mother's milk. So they are viable as infants because of, of baby formula they're not dependent on their mother's breast milk. Therefore, they're not dependent on their mother's body. Therefore, they are viable, right? Sure, that's true now that we have baby formula, but we didn't always have that, right? There was a time when we didn't have baby formula and the child was fully dependent on their mother's body still, on their mother's breasts and breast milk even after birth. But remember, the viability standard says that the child is viable and therefore has rights once it's no longer dependent on their mother's body. But pre-baby formula, uh, uh, pre-baby formula days, that child would have still been fully dependent on their mother's body, therefore not viable, and therefore, according to pro-abortion thinking, not a person and could be killed. But of course, that would be infanticide. So infant babies from the time period before the invention 
of baby formula were non-persons, right? And could be killed because they weren't viable. But then infant babies suddenly obtained personhood rights when some dude thought up and invented baby formula because it was the baby formula that made infants viable, right? Not dependent on their mother's breasts or body and then therefore no longer requiring their mother's body to live. So how could the rights and value of babies pre-baby formula days suddenly change and become viable persons because some dude was sitting around and came up with ingredients for baby formula? That sounds strange, doesn't it? That your actual dignity and natural right to life could suddenly be given to you when you didn't have it because some dude thought up ingredients for baby formula? And it sounds strange. Well, the same question has to be asked of those who support the concept of viability for abortions. If viability is defined as the potential of the baby to survive outside their mother's body when supported by up-to-date medicine, that, but with the progression of medicine, the age of viability continues to get younger and younger, Right? So in the same way that some dude thinks up ingredients for a baby formula that makes the infant viable, some dude thinks up medical advancements in technology that makes the baby viable at earlier and earlier prenatal stages because now we're able to save preemies at an earlier stage of development than we were before, therefore making them not dependent on their mother's body, therefore moving viability to earlier and earlier developmental prenatal stages. So riddle me this, how could one's value and right to life constantly shift and change based on the medical inventions of others? That's a completely um, other category, right? Medical advancements has nothing to do with intrinsic dignity or a right to life. Because human value and natural rights are not subjective things, and they don't come in varying degrees. What do I mean by that? You, you either have human value or you don't, right? You either have a right to life or you don't. And if you're a human being, then you have intrinsic value, the type of value attributed to no other species. So that value cannot be impacted, it can't be increased, and it can't be decreased. In other words, it's not dependent on anything but your human nature. That's the only thing your natural rights and intrinsic dignity and value are dependent on, your human nature. And when do we get a human nature? From the moment we're human. And when do we become human? The moment of conception. So such natural rights must also be granted to the preborn who are fully human. So it's certainly not dependent on the medical entrepreneurship of inventors who create new ways to make babies viable at earlier and earlier stages. Such medical entrepreneurship inventions have nothing to do with the objective nature of your rights as a member of the human species and the natural rights and dignity that flow from that human nature. But by making viability a decisive moment in which a baby may be valuable enough for individual states to protect, you end up with strange conclusions, such as that human value and being human are purely dependent upon geography. What do I mean by this? Okay, if the, if the rights of the child and their value change somehow at viability such that it's reasonable to allow states to protect the child after viability, then viability and therefore human rights itself 
would change based off of where you are in the country or the world. For example, a fetus in a modern New York City neonatal unit who's born prematurely may be viable at 21 weeks, while a baby at that same stage of development in rural Africa might not make it until 35 weeks because that child and his or her parents in rural Africa wouldn't have access to the type of technology and medical treatments and up-to-date medicine that would allow those parents to keep their baby alive and viable at 21 weeks. So how could the rights of the child, their viability, if their viability is connected to their natural rights and value, then their value and natural rights are based off of where they are in the world. That's very strange. Suppose a pregnant female carrying a 22-week fetus begins a journey at JFK, then flies to rural South America. Does her fetus start the journey with a right to life because she has access to the medical technology um, in order to make her baby viable at 22 weeks? Does her fetus start the journey with a right to life but lose it once the plane leaves American airspace? Because at that point, the child wouldn't have access to the type of technology that makes that child viable. Similarly, if a child didn't have access to baby formula and only could survive through its mother's breast milk, then the child would not be viable and according to the standards of the culture of death would be a non-person and could be killed. But of course, the culture says, well, no, that's infanticide. That's wrong. Well, then the rights of the child can't come from their dependency on others or their ability to survive independent of others. That value has to come from something more objective, namely their human nature. So viability simply measures the state of our current technology, but not the status of the fetus. And the current state of our technology is going to continue shifting and changing every few years. Praise God for that, that we'll be able to save prematurely born babies at earlier and earlier stages. But that doesn't mean that they somehow became more human or somehow were... Uh, granted more rights simply because some dude thought up a new way to make babies viable at earlier and earlier stages. So viability is not a measure of the moral status of the fetus, but the current state of our technology. But these are th- this is the concept um, at play in this case before the Supreme Court that's going to answer the question, can individual states ban abortion pre-viability before the child can survive outside the womb? And that's valuable because it forces the debate back to the question, what is the unborn? Who are they? Not, can they survive outside the womb or outside of the uterus? So next we're going to get to Planned Parenthood admitting that viability is complicated and showing us that they are unable to give an adequate definition for this concept. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and become a patron of the show. Um, If you appreciate the show, if this has been helpful for you, we would love to have your support. You can check out our really fun tiers and perks and you'll get uh, different just fun thank you rewards for each of the different tiers you support the show at. This helps us increase our production value, bring on more guests, reach more people, boost this type of content on social media while we're allowed to exist on those platforms as well as begin uh, bringing a team with me to different events and creating conversational interactive content on the streets Um, that type of viral content that people love to watch on such a hotly contended debate to change minds change hearts and save lives so consider becoming a patron of the show at patreon.com forward slash unaborted and we'll be right back with a whole lot more Welcome back to the show. So not only 
um, do most Americans struggle with the concept of viability? Not only have I left you scratching your head about how viability could um, be used as a decisive measure of human value and natural rights and the, uh, the value of the child such that the court should allow states to protect children from abortions after viability, but Planned Parenthood struggles to provide an adequate, clear uh, definition and understanding of viability as well. And Planned Parenthood workers and, and directors and abortionists before have admitted that viability is, uh, quote, uh, quote, unquote, complicated, very complicated, right, because it's stupid. So in 2019, at a U.S. House Committee on Oversight and Government Reforms Proceedings, Representative Thomas Massey, a Republican from Kentucky, questioned Planned Parenthood abortionist Colleen McNicholas, and she was or is the chief medical officer for Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region and southwest Missouri. And he questioned her on the concept of viability to see if she could provide an adequate definition or understanding of this subjective, squishy concept. And he specifically asked her, what is the medical consensus for the age of viability? At what point is the child viable and able to survive outside the womb? And this then sets him up to ask her, and if you can give me that stage of development, do you abort children who are already fully viable and able to survive outside the womb? So here is Representative Thomas Massey questioning Planned Parenthood abortionist Colleen McNicholas to see if she can even give a definition or understanding of this concept viability. Uh, Dr. McNicholas, what's the medical consensus for age of viability of a fetus? I appreciate the question. So viability is a complicated uh, medical construct. There is no particular gestational age. Um, there are some pregnancies in which a fetus will never be viable. There are a number of different factors that we think about uh, when we're considering if a pregnancy is or isn't viable. So what, is there a legal consensus on the age of viability? Not to my understanding, but I'm a physician, not a lawyer. So Planned Parenthood uh, baby killer Colleen McNicholas says viability is a complicated medical construct and there is no particular gestational age. Yes, it's complicated. <laughs> it's complicated because it's BS. It's complicated because it's nonsensical for all of the reasons I already stated that the rights of children, uh, their value, their viability would just be purely dependent upon what area of the world or country they're in um, and upon the most current entrepreneurial medical ventures of doctors to create new technology to make children viable at earlier and earlier stages. It's nonsensical. And you've probably heard of these horror stories you'll sometimes read in medical journals or on conservative publications of mothers who delivered very prematurely uh, babies who delivered very prematurely and their baby and the mothers are crying out and begging the doctor or nurses to help her baby to try to save her baby while they stand by and do nothing now why because their definition their understanding of viability happens to be at a gestational age slightly older than the age of the preemie, than the age of the child when he or she was born early. And I've read these stories in, in pro-life news sources and conservative publications. Horrific. I mean, these doctors and hospitals should be sued for malpractice and for allowing the death of children. Why? Because their botched definition of viability happens to be older than the age of the child that was born. And so they're thinking, well, that child can't be saved because it's not viable. And yet we'll get these crazy stories sometimes of children being born cared for, loved, 
heroically saved in a neonatal unit at ages earlier, younger than some of the children who were left in their mother's arms to die because the on-call doctor or nurse had a different gestational definition of viability. Does that make sense? In fact, Trump, in his 2020 State of the Union address, you might recall this, highlighted mother Robin Schneider and her daughter Ellie. Baby Ellie was born at 21 weeks and six days. By the way, the earliest baby to have now been born and survived uh, was born at 21 weeks and zero days, so six days earlier than baby Ellie. Well, baby Ellie was born at St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri. St. Luke's was the first hospital in the area to initiate a program designed to treat very premature babies born before 24 weeks of pregnancy. And according to KSBH Kansas City, they said, quote, nationally, babies born prior to the 24-week mark have a 6% survival rate. This was back in 2020. But at St. Luke's, they have a 50% survival rate. So if you're a 24-week-old prematurely born baby and you happen to be born at St. Luke's in Kansas City, you have a 50% survival rate of, of developing, going home healthy, and living a normal life and developing like any other child or any other adult. But if that same baby born at 24 weeks, 23 weeks maybe, is born somewhere else in the country, they might only have a 6% survival rate. Well, what does that mean? Well, KSBH Kansas City continues and says, it's clear that medical intervention has made a huge difference. Oh, wait, do you mean that viability is a completely BS subjective uh, concept because it constantly shifts and change based, based off of where in the country you are? Yes. And that's why Planned Parenthood abortionist McNicholas says, uh, it, you know, it's very complex. It's a complicated medical construct. And I shudder to think of how many premature babies have been left to die in the arms of their mother who could have been saved if doctors simply intervened and did their best to keep the baby alive. So you can just get a little window into how Planned Parenthood can't even offer any clarity on this medical concept of viability because it was never clear in the first place. And the courts simply created trimesters of the child's development. Some trimesters, they would allow states to regulate abortion, the first trimester. The second, some regulations, but not banning it. And the third trimester would allow states to ban it. But these were just concepts created by the court. And then the medicine had to step in and make subjective determinations of when a child is viable. But none of these concepts make any sense because human value doesn't come from the fact on whether you can survive apart from your mother's body or not. And the, the pre-baby formula days are a great example of that. Those children and babies and infants would not have been viable by that same definition and standard. But Representative Thomas Massey goes on and asks this Planned Parenthood abortionist, uh, McNicholas, is if there is any point of gestation beyond which you would not abort a fetus, is there any point past viability where you would not abort a fetus or your clinic would not? Um, and here's her answer. What's the latest term abortion that you've performed, like gestation period in weeks? So my uh, practice includes the provision of abortion up until the point of viability. And again, we already well, had a discussion about yeah, viability not that? being a So just give me the number in weeks then. I don't know. I, you don't remember the, the number of weeks? That's or, correct. So what I, about size of the unborn baby? Do you know the largest baby that you've aborted? I'm not sure how I would even quantify that. If I use the word fetus, could you, do you know, you have no idea the age or gestation period of the fetuses that you're aborting? So again, as I said, my practice includes 
abortion care through the point of viability, and as we previously discussed, let that me, could be. Let me put it this way. Point. Yes. Is there is there any point of gestation beyond which you personally would not abort a fetus? You know, it's medicine is not black and white. I I recognize, and my ten years of practice uh, informs this this opinion that pregnancy can be really complicated. And given that there are pregnancies for which a fetus may never be viable, I think it's really important that we allow physicians and patients to have every medical resource to make decisions that are appropriate for them and their health. Okay, so medicine is not black and white, meaning if we grant the concept of viability, then it's not black and white because that's a subjective standard to determine the rights of an individual, their ability to survive on their own or not, apart from their mother's uterus. And so she says she just provides abortion care, right? Abortion care, using the euphemisms of bigots. I provide abortion care through point of viability, she says. And then if you noticed, she said, and that could be, and then... Thomas Massey starts interrupting, and then she finishes and says, at any point. So she says, and that could be at any point. In other words, viability, she's admitting, is just a subjective standard to be wielded by the abortionist in order to justify abortion. Viability could be at any point because I get to decide when a child is viable or not. And then she goes on to say, there are pregnancies for which a fetus will never be viable. Now, again, she's she's using euphemisms here, right? She's saying pregnancies that won't be viable. Well, a pregnancy is not viable or non-viable. A baby is viable or non-viable. But she says there are pregnancies for which a fetus will never be viable. So what's she doing here? Well, she's appealing to the super minority of cases where a baby will not survive after birth or not survive long after birth in order to avoid being honest. Because if she was honest, she would be forced to admit that she would dismember a baby after viability when he or she could be delivered and survive. Because this abortionist is smart enough to know that the answer, that that answer will disgust the majority of the American public. Most of the American public does not like late-term abortions. A Gallup polling from 2019 said 13% of Americans support abortion in the third trimester. Um, you know, some more do in the second trimester, but certainly not 50%, not anything near it. Because for whatever reason, we as Americans get a little more uncomfortable when the child looks more like us and when we know the child could be delivered, survive, and just be adopted instead. So rather than providing a clear definition of viability, she just says there are some pregnancies that will never be viable for the fetus. And so, you know, it's just hard to really give you a definition of viability because, you know, medicine's not black and white, like she says, right? She's trying to be intentionally obscure and gray and confusing because if she were to be honest, then we all know what she would say. All abortionists nearly are okay with aborting babies after viability because they get paid a lot more to do it because the child is larger and that's a more expensive abortion. And then lastly, Representative Thomas Massey closes up and asks her, is, is every reason for abortion valid? Would you accept any reason from a mother or a father or a family to abort their child? Um, and this is important, right? So McNicholas says that there will always be some babies that won't be viable. And she says that in order to avoid defining viability with any age-specific clarity. Because if she clearly defines viability at a certain stage, she'd be forced to answer that she's okay with killing babies after the point at which they could survive outside the womb and be adopted. And the answer to that question is clear, right? 
Planned Parenthood would lose out on profiting off of the murder of that viable human. And this is why she's intentionally so um, confusing and obscure about defining viability with any age-specific clarity. So Thomas Massey shoots back and asks her if every reason for abortion is valid. Uh, At your clinic, does it matter what the reason is for the abortion? At my clinic, I trust that women have a valid reason. Every reason that they have is valid. Okay, so given that you think that every reason is valid, would you abort a viable fetus if there was not a law preventing it? Again, given that the reality for people choosing abortion is that there are many reasons, there isn't a single thing that defines somebody's choice. It is a reflection of their... You seem to have a hard time saying this. This tells me you have a heart, or at least you know that people watching this have a heart, and they would be concerned if you would just admit, which you won't admit here, that you would abort a viable fetus for any reason if the law did not prevent it. Mr. Massey, uh, abortion is moral, it is important, it is health care, and I support people being the experts in their own lives and making decisions for themselves. So that's pretty shocking stuff. Um, You're probably not surprised by that if you listen to this show. You know how um, careful the abortion industry is to say the quiet part out loud, to admit exactly what they believe. And most people don't even know that the Democratic Party platform is abortion through point of birth. And they want to codify Roe v. Wade into federal law so no states can pass any type of protection for preborn children. And so rather than admitting that, yes, she believes every reason a woman could offer for abortion is valid, she just pivots, right, and says, I, I just trust the reasons of my patients who are the experts for their own lives, right? So rather than answering the question that she that she believes every reason for abortion is valid. She just says abortion is moral. It is important. It is healthcare, And I support people being the experts in their own lives and making decisions for themselves. In other words, <laughs> if the expert pregnant mothers make the decision to abort their viable baby, McNicholas would gladly accept cash to kill that child. So viability is just a smokescreen for the abortion industry to try and hide their radicalism. Because do they actually oppose abortions after viability? No, they don't. The abortion industry in the Democratic Party supports abortion through point of birth for any reason or no reason at all. They don't actually care about the viability question or debate. The only reason they participate in it is because they know that over 90% of abortions are performed before viability. And they know that most Americans don't support late-term abortions, especially after viability. They know people get more uncomfortable with that if they know, well, just deliver the baby and put it up for adoption if it doesn't require the mother's body to survive. So they have to come up with a reason, right? A case, an argument, an an explanation, a reason for why everyone, even pro-choice moderates who hate late-term abortions, should oppose bans on abortion at the gestational age where the majority of their cash flow comes from that first 95% of abortions, which is all before viability. They know that most Americans have absorbed the dangerous premise that the unborn child doesn't have a right to life when they're still dependent on their mother's body for survival. 
There's this deeply held philosophical assumption in America. It's very dangerous. And that assumption is that you're not a full person with rights unless you're capable of surviving on your own. And by the way, this is why you'll see many pro-choice people also support euthanasia. Because like the unborn, many elderly people are unable to feed and take care of themselves. It's the same premise, right? It's that you're not fully a person or deserving of rights if you can't survive on your own and take care of yourself. You'll also hear people say this, right? Have you heard this one? No one has a right to use someone else's body to stay alive. Stay alive. I get this one on Facebook all the time, right? The child doesn't have a right. Nobody else actually. It's not just the child, they'll say. They'll say, nobody has a right to use someone else's body to stay alive. Before viability, the baby requires their mother's body to stay alive. Therefore, they're not persons, right? That's the argument of the pro-abort. So I hope you see this. I hope you see this. The only reason the abortion industry participates in the viability debate is not because they believe viable babies should not be aborted, but because they know most of the babies they kill are not viable and that Americans support earlier abortions. So they have to give them a reason why such earlier abortions are so obviously okay and therefore rally up support against abortion bans, like this Mississippi one that would ban abortion pre-viability at 15 weeks before the child can survive outside of the womb. So this case is important because it forces the abortion industry and the Democrats to explain why the ability to survive outside the womb matters. Why do you focus on viability? Why is that such a big deal? What is it about the child's inability, inability to survive outside the womb on its own that deprives them of the right to life. It forces the other side to ground human rights. And we all know they don't ground it in a human nature. They ground it in functions and capacities, such as the child's um, ability to function on its own without assistance. But they can't explain why your dependency on someone or something else removes your right to life. And so the case is important because it forces that debate. Why is banning abortions before viability so wrong? Well, that takes us right back to the wrongly decided Roe versus Wade and the wrongly decided Planned Parenthood v. Casey, both of which never explained why states can ban abortions after viability, but not before. And in turn, that takes us right back to the heart of the matter. What is the unborn? Who is in the womb? If it's a human being who differs from us in the same ways we differ from one another, then that child has value and a right to life simply because they're human. Now, now, not, not when they reach some developmental stage, right, at which they can survive outside the womb with the support of up-to-date medicine, a stage which changes every few years with more up-to-date medicine. Our natural rights are not dependent on the entrepreneurial medical um, inventions of doctors, it's, it's dependent upon our human nature, which we had at the moment of conception. So that's what you need to understand about the motivations of the culture of death, of Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. They don't really care about the viability debate, except that it's a useful tool to, rem to convince more Americans that uh, we're not really persons before we can survive outside the womb, right? So you should definitely oppose all abortion bans that would ban abortions before the child can survive outside the womb. What do you want to do? You want to force women 
to give their support of their body to someone else without their consent. And that becomes the argument. And, and for whatever reason, it's easy to rally people to oppose those types of abortion bans. So this strikes right at the very heart. What is in the womb? What is the unborn? Where do their rights come from? And why are we valuable in the first place? Well, next, um, we're going to talk about how the Supreme Court will rule uh, and the possible outcomes of this decision. But first, if you want to enjoy this show visually and to see me in any of the clips that we play, uh, please go over and subscribe at YouTube, Seth Gruber of Voice for the Unborn, um, to see our media and our guests that we have on the show on a weekly basis. Hit subscribe, hit the notifications bell so you don't miss a single episode. Um, and uh, help us grow that platform, YouTube, second largest search engine in the world world. As long as I can continue to fly under the radar of the technocrats at Google, we want to reach as many people as possible with the truth about life and the bigotry of abortion. Thanks so much, and we'll be right back with a whole lot more. So how will the Supreme Court rule? What are the possible outcomes on this decision as the 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 uh, most the biggest pro-life abortion Supreme Court case since 1992, since I was one years old, since Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which reaffirmed the ruling of Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton from 1973. This will be a pro-life test for Trump's Supreme Court placements. And it's very important that we get this right. For too long, Republican-appointed Supreme Court justices have ruled against the pre-born human equality, human rights, and have continued to uphold the rulings in the bigoted Roe versus Wade that said a new class of human beings were not persons. So let's just briefly go through the makeup of the Supreme Court. So on the left, you have Sonia Sotomayor, Stephen Breyer, and Elena Kagan. Obviously, recently with the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, being replaced by Amy Coney Barrett, you have one less radical left-wing justice. On the right, you have Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas, and then most recently, Amy Coney Barrett. And then in the center, which is a generous description, my, um, in my understanding, would be John Roberts. John Roberts, the fake conservative, the court jester, as Michael Knowles calls him in the kingdom of liberalism, who says he's a conservative but regularly rules in a radical left-wing way. Makes me wonder if he's being blackmailed or if he's just looking for crumbs from the table of the liberal establishment in order to remain in the good graces of people that he likes. So who would actually vote to overturn Roe versus Wade? Well, the only one that I can tell you with certainty would, would rule to overturn Roe versus Wade because he said it publicly before would be Clarence Thomas. And uh, in my opinion, Clarence Thomas is the most conservative member of the Supreme Court and was even more conservative than Antonin Scalia. And he said publicly before that he believed Roe to be wrongly decided and that it's important that we revisit this decision and get it right. So that's very encouraging. Now, there was a predictor case last year or in 2019, 2019, I believe, um, that gave us a little insight into how perhaps the Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices would rule. Now, this was pre-Amy Coney Barrett, but it gave us maybe a window into the jurisprudence of Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch. And that case was called June Medical versus Rousseau out of Louisiana. And we covered it on the show at the time. You can go back and listen to it if you'd like. It was answering this question out of Louisiana should abortion clinics be held to the same medical standards as every other ambulatory surgical center in the state? In other words, if abortion is just surgery 
and abortionists are surgeons, then shouldn't they be held to the same surgical safety standards as every other place that performs surgeries? Uh, you would think so. That seems uh, rather uncontroversial. And yet, sadly, the court ruled the wrong way. Um, and they went 5-4 to um, rule against the law that would require abortion clinics to have their abortionists have admitting privileges at a local hospital meeting the requirements of every other ambulatory surgical center in Louisiana. They ruled 5-4 with, with John Roberts siding with the left wing. Kavanaugh and Gorsuch ruled correctly. However, Kavanaugh at the time didn't specify a pro-life motivation for his dissent, uh, but rather he based his decision on the factual uncertainties of the case. In other words, he didn't say that he ruled the way he did because um, we need to ensure that um, more preborn children are saved or that um, women are kept safe as they pursue abortions. Um, always a strange thing to say. There's nothing safe about arranging the death of your child through your uterus. But he didn't give a specific pro-life motivation for his ruling. Um, but that was good in that Brett Kavanaugh and Neil Gorsuch both made the right ruling. John Roberts uh, betrayed the conservative movement and the pre-born once again. And we lost the uh, correct ruling of that case by one vote. Uh, then in 2018 the Supreme Court voted to not take up a case that could have allowed Kansas and Louisiana to cut Planned Parenthood's Medicaid funding. A fairly simple um, proposition. Of course, Planned Parenthood shouldn't be getting federal tax dollars whatsoever for how they treat women like prospects for abortion and profit off of the killing of little babies and little children in the womb. And yet the court voted to not even take up the case much less um, make a ruling on the case after hearing arguments. The court announced that it would not review two lower court decisions that temporarily banned Louisiana and Kansas from cutting Planned Parenthood's Medicaid funding. Three of the court's conservatives voted to take up the cases. Kavanaugh and Chief Justice John Roberts declined to join them, therefore ensuring the cases would not receive the necessary four votes for review. So this was a huge Kavanaugh disappointment. Uh, now, this was before Amy Coney Barrett, um, but this was a huge, huge disappointment. I believe this was uh, even pre-Gorsuch. Um, or, or no, I guess we had Gorsuch already. So anyways, that was very disappointing um, and seemed like a pretty uncontroversial premise to entertain, just allowing states to defund Planned Parenthood of Medicaid funding. So what does this mean? What might, what might insights this give us into how the Supreme Court might rule on this decision out of Mississippi? Uh, to answer the question whether states can ban abortions pre-viability before the child can survive outside of the womb. So the best case scenario would be a 6-3 vote, obviously. That would be the best case scenario. That would mean that the only dissenting opinions would be Sonia Sotomayor, Stephen Breyer, and Elena Kagan, the two radical left-wing justices. Um, that would mean that everyone else would vote um, in support of allowing states to ban abortions pre-viability. Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas, Amy Coney Barrett, and John Roberts. However, um, I think that that's thinking far too optimistically. So the next best would be a 5-4 decision with John Roberts once again and predictably betraying the Constitution and the pre-born. That would be the next best. But that's the only scenario that um, the next best scenario that actually gets us a win, because without all of Trump's appointees ruling rightly, the abortion industry wins again. So if anyone besides John Roberts, if anyone more than John Roberts rules the wrong way, 
then we lose the case because then you would have Sotomayor, Breyer, Kagan, John Roberts, and then I don't know, maybe Brett Kavanaugh, uh, maybe Neil Gorsuch ruling against Louisiana and therefore allowing more children to be aborted and killed. So we would need, at the very least, Alito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, Thomas, and Barrett. I believe Clarence Thomas will vote to allow states to ban abortions pre-viability. I think we have Amy Coney Barrett, but she's still a little bit untested. Samuel Alito often rules with Thomas. Um, but with Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, I just don't know. Um, and the courts have let us down many times before when we thought we had a conservative majority or when we did have a conservative majority. And yet those conservatives didn't rule so conservative. So this is a, um, a case to be praying about. Um, obviously, 90 percent of abortions are performed in the first trimester, the first 12 weeks. This would ban abortions at 15 weeks and after. That would save many children. And we need to continue challenging the federal Roe versus Wade and Doe versus Bolton decision and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Um, but but with the right ruling here, not only would we save many children, um, but they the courts would be forced to revisit their rulings in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which said states cannot ban abortions before viability. You cannot ban abortions in the second trimester. Well, if we can ban abortions in the second trimester at 15 weeks and later, then why not earlier than that, right? What happens magically to the child at 15 weeks that, that would somehow allow us to ban abortions, but not before that? In the same way that the left and the culture of death and the courts need to answer the question, why did you allow states to ban abortion after viability? Reaffirmed in Planned Parenthood v. Casey in 1992, but not before viability. What magically happens with viability? A medical and legal standard and definition that changes Every few years when we invent medical technology to make ch children viable at earlier stages, these definitions and concepts make no sense because the only way you can make sense of human rights and human equality is by grounding those rights and equality in the only thing we have in common, a human nature. And it should be self-evident to make this statement that you receive a human nature when you become human <laughs> and you become human at the moment of conception. These are the type of self-evident truths that our founders understood. That's why they said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are the right to life. And if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. Stay tuned on this case. Continue to pray for this case. Pray for the courage and spine of Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Clarence Thomas, and Amy Barrett, and for John Roberts to either stop being blackmailed or to um, want more than crumbs from the table of the liberal establishment and return to the home of conservatism to defend first principles and the founding ideals that founded this country, which begins with the right to life for all human beings. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. If you want to engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule if you want to hear me speak live and local, or to book me for an event. My summer schedule is almost full. My fall schedule is filling up fast, and we want to wake up the church. Young people challenge abortion bigotry on college campuses to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Oh, <laughs> oh,